Hey folks, Brian here with a quick note before the show begins. Uh, we're dumb. We were talking about the letter of the Green Lantern, and I read uh, Steve Olaf's name, who is the colorist, and we should have said Tom Orzakowski, who is a fantastic and legendary letterer, and that's on us. We're dumb. Don't yell at us on Twitter. We're dumb. And uh, yeah, bye. Welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian. With me, as always, are Vince and Zach. We're going to talk about the DC Comics released on the 7th of November, 2018. But first, I just wanted to say, if you wait till the end of this episode, you'll hear an interview with myself and Scott Snyder talking about Justice League number 11, so please stay tuned for that. But, no offense to Justice League or any other book released this week, there is only one book that really deserves the full attention this week because it is such a monumental event in DC Comics, and that is the Green Lantern number one. The return of Grant Morrison to superhero comics, written by, obviously, Grant Morrison, illustrated by Liam Sharp, and, um, boys, can we do a whole hour on this in this issue if you wanted to? I think we could. I think we could. I think we will. Let's just go page by page. (laughs) Um, you joke, but there's almost something on every page to talk about. I'm not even. I wasn't joking. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> play, right. play us out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we do the page by page, um, I just want to say, like, one of the fears that I think I had going into this book was just that because of the title of the book, it was going to be just the Hal Jordan show, and it's not that. It couldn't be further from that. Yeah, this is the most, this is the least Hal Jordan show we've had uh, in many moons. Yeah, (laughs) it's great. Um, So, Zach, start us off on the first page. (laughs) Well, first page, uh, we get a very attractive uh, splash page with the Guardians. They're back. (laughs) They're back. They're uh, ambivalent again. (laughs) Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but but already we're not focusing on two eight one four. Yep. Mm-hmm. Twenty eighteen point two. Which, if it's anything uh, like twenty eighteen point one, get me off here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, do you think that was a conscious choice? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, also they're keeping the the decimals, the decimal designations. Yep. Uh, we should mm-hmm. mention this this first scene takes place on New Oa, which is uh, the New Oa. <laughs> yep, and I love. <laughs> it's like the new Coke; it'll be around forever. <laughs> 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 Have you ever heard of such, such a thing, Paul? Uh, <laughs> God damn it! Um, and then, and then, right away, you notice that 
the book is called The Green Lantern, which Grant Morrison has talked about how that stands more for the lantern symbol, the battery, that the sort of the the emblem that all of these heroes operate under. And right there on the first page, the biggest thing on the page is literally the giant uh, lantern image. Yeah. So I, I think that sets the tone pretty well for what this is going to be. Absolutely. So there's a um, there's like a one page interview in the back of this week's comics with Morrison and Sharp, and Sharp says that the second panel of the book, which is the top panel of page two, was three pages of script. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't it though? I love it. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, so, Vince, why don't you walk us through some of those uh some of those three pages worth of images in that one panel? Sure. So I don't even one of the great things about this issue, um, you know, we're gonna talk about Grant Morrison a whole lot, but I think Liam Sharp some of the shit that he's doing in this book is almost indescribable. Uh, let's focus on the background for a second first. You've got, like, gigantic tumbling dice. Uh, that's your cue, Brian, to do a little little uh, Jagger impression there if you want. No? Okay. Um, and then Sorry, you've got say these, it again. Like, you, you, you call broke up for one second. I heard my name. Oh, I said... I said I said... It, right, let's focus on the background. Right away, you've got these giant tumbling dice. Uh-huh. I, I said... This is your cue to do a Jagger impression, if you want. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a really bad Jagger song. Okay. She's so cold. Da- I hate that, hate that <laughs> fucking song. There you go. That's pretty She's good. She's so goddamn cold. Um, anyway, so. But then, so you've got these big dice in the background. You've got um, these, like, fish creatures or something. They're like big balloon fish that have, like, a tube going from mouth to mouth. What even is this shit? Fish centipede. The greatest thing. What's that? Fish centipede. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, Part of what I love about the Green Lantern books historically is that it's kind of the the book where DC allows itself to get a little weird. It's probably the the series that usually has the most sort of weird alien designs, kind of the weirdest looking threats, you know, on average, Mm -hmm. right? This book, thanks to Liam Sharp's art, is probably the weirdest green- looking Green Lantern book I've ever read. Or certainly in a very long time. I, I mean, I can't, yeah, I cannot remember one that, that was weirder. Where there was more shit going on in the background or even in the foreground that I don't, e- I wouldn't even know how to describe to you, you know? Um, yeah. And, and it's so good. Calling, calling up our uh, off podcast DMs again. Um, you mentioned that uh, this feels a little bit like a Vertigo. Yeah, book. it it reminds me of like a '90s Vertigo, just in how weird the art is. Yeah, it, it feels a lot like to me, which I'm I've not read as much of this, but I it kind of reminds me of issues that I've read of the. Green Lantern mosaic. I was just gonna bring that up, Zach. Series. I was just gonna bring that up. How when yeah. Vince said it was like the weirdest Green Lantern, I was gonna say, well, weirdest since Mosaic. 
Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit because I think you're maybe more familiar with I mean, that. I haven't read Mosaic probably since it was like just came out or right after it came okay. out in the early 90s. But Mosaic took place off planet for the most part and had Jon Stewart as the the lead character and it was a lot about him with various alien creatures on alien planets. So it was it was like key lantern weirdness and this reminds me a lot of that. Nice. So then, so that's that's just the background. But if you want to talk about what's actually going on on the page, we're introduced to Maxim Tox is his name, or their name, I should say. Um, but uh, uh, they're fighting this giant, like arachno sapien pirate thing, <laughs> right? And. Uh, and then uh, there's like there's a couple aliens who are like betting on the fight. And we have to give a shout out going to on. our the friend of the podcast, Alice W. Castle, who's just gonna love all the Scottish slang that, that these <laughs> alien gamblers are throwing around. It just sounds like Alice's Twitter feed. <laughs> In it, Tay win it. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Um, and then and then poor Maxim Tox gets his uh, ring finger bit off. That was that was his, that was their favorite finger. You savage, <laughs> so bitey all the time. And I love how I love how that as we go on, we'll find that that's like a repeating. You will see that finger like floating oh, yeah. next yeah. to to Maxim talks later in the issue. Yeah, the finger remains severed but doesn't go away. Yeah, <laughs> and then that takes us to our third page. I mean, um, there's just. The battle stuff happening here is it's so unbelievably detailed by Liam Sharp. And it's so insane looking and it's so much fun. But it doesn't read as like, like busy for the sake of being busy. You know, this this is an artistic tour de force, but it seems like every single pencil stroke had a decision behind it. And it's really a beautiful they're beautiful pages they're also pages super packed with information even if it's information that may not seem super relevant or important at the time there is so much about like the the various cultures represented here just because of how the backgrounds are are rendered and how the characters are written it's really an incredibly rich few pages that introduce the book and again no hal jordan yet yeah i I also look Oh, go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was gonna say no, no Green Lantern, but we do get uh, Fluzel Flem. <laughs> yes, a uh, an amazing new Lantern who's essentially the Flu. <laughs> yes, um, because of course, Grant lo- Morrison would invent a uh, an illness Lantern. Of course, yeah. which we we did have a, another bacteria virus Lantern. Uh, previously in John's run, which I don't know if he created him, but he was a no, actually Alan Moore did. <laughs> I, I just checked. Um, but it was I'm a shocked. different character. Yeah. What what were you going to say, Vince? Oh, I was gonna say I love how there's a I love how there's just uh the you know the pages are so alive with uh like regular people walking around or or and aliens or citizens of whatever this place is. And there's even like a transport that flies by that then the spider pirate like commandeers, mm-hmm. you know, 
it, it just it makes the whole scene it's a fight scene but it feels like uh populated and and crowded and and slightly dangerous in that way you know yeah um so page four we see um lantern phlegm essentially pull out of somebody <laughs> like pull himself <laughs> out of his ear is it i guess well, I think like he's 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 basically like sneezing up. It's it's just like it's a lot of green snot yeah. because he has the emerald flu, as we're about to find out in the next page. <laughs> um, and like this issue is kind of the art in this issue is kind of gross. Yes, we see it a little bit in the page beforehand where it's just. It's just very organic. Mm-hmm. And and with that comes kind of like a an ickiness. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good word for it. I think organic's a good word for it. Um it's not the sort of clean sanitized version of space. Yes. Um But yeah, keep going somebody. Yeah, so then so then on the next page, um uh Maxim is kind of like taunting the the villain. It's pretty much, you know, they've they've got him where they want him and uh uh we're introduced to another lantern. It's another uh Zudarian, right? So there's all there always seems to be like no matter what earth you're on or what sector you're on, there always seems to be a Zudarian uh, lantern right and this one's name is trilla true i believe yes was this character introduced at the end of venditti's run i don't think so i don't think this is that one because i did, i i don't know maybe i, I, I did introduce a female yeah uh, I, I, after tomar 2 like goes over to the dark stars there's a new uh, a new lantern chosen, but she right. seemed a lot younger. Yeah, I, I, I'm fairly certain it is not this one because this is a completely different, uh, like a completely different sector we've never seen or heard about before. Right? I so, mean, do you know what sector Tomar Two patrolled? Yes, it's uh two. Wait, wasn't it the one right off of right off from? It's the same one that Krypton's in. God, you guys know. Which I think I is. I can't believe you guys know I that. I think. Yeah, this is not that. This is not yeah, that it's, it's same. Two eight, it's 2813. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to see if they're. Let's see. I mean, we're recording this before the issue is even out yet. So that it might be hard to find information about this this lantern before the issue comes out. Yeah, I I can't find the name right quick about of the of that new of the Venditti one, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm fairly certain it's not this one. Um, Clearly, Morrison did not read Venditti's run. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Is that going to be a new running joke? Yes, now? it is. <laughs> um. Yeah. So then they're they're. Uh, they're throwing uh, the villain in the meat wagon, right? Or the villains, 
Um, I love the uh, the little the little uh, the way that they kind of box these creatures up in in like a construct. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. There's like construct uh, handcuffs and. It, it it gives it that like this start, this whole segment um, kind of makes good on Morrison's claim that this book is more about um, the Green Lanterns as a police force because you kind of begin with this cold opening that has nothing to do with Hal at the moment, but it's just a couple of core people doing their doing their job essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and and we get a little bit of context about where we are now, um, with the mention of the them trying to steal uh, from the Luck Lords of Ventura, mm-hmm. which uh, plays into I guess the dice theme from the from the opening pages. Yeah. Yep. All right, let's turn the page. Turn the page. Uh, one of my uh, favorite lanterns, um, but I'm blanking on his. Oh, Chrysillian. Chrysillian. Yeah. Chrysillian. Yeah. A little rock, rock creature. Yeah, he shows up to, um, I guess, take over the transport of these uh, criminals. Um, and then you, you still have the little finger floating there. Yes. Next to Maxim. And you've got, and he's blowing his nose with a like construct handkerchief. It's so great. Yeah. There are so many little moments like that in this first issue that just lets you know this book is in good hands. Whether it's bringing in these these fun random lanterns or the missing finger or just whatever it is, it's there. Morrison is so clearly having fun with this. It's wonderful. All right, let's turn the page again, um, and we get um, a very classic scene here of a Green Lantern finding somebody in a derelict spaceship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maxim yeah. was Maxim was alerted by the ring that there was something in the area that required their attention, and uh, seems like trouble ahead because uh, they say something about antimatter, and well, the next thing you know, uh, he's done for. Haven't I suffered enough? <laughs> Such a C-3PO moment. Yeah. yeah, I like that is a great poll, Zach, because I'm one of the one of the great things about Morrison is that pretty much all of his side characters, no, no matter how big or small, have some sort of personality. Right. And I was trying to put my finger on on who I would compare that to. And that is really like the perfect personality to apply to this character. Probably a little less of a like a scaredy cat than C-3PO. But like the way that Maxim talks talks reminded me definitely of that. That's a that's a good poll. Yeah. Uh, I also just want to point out we saw them a couple pages ago, but on the top of the next page, we see um, the Luck Lords themselves, 
And Liam Sharp does this incredible job of giving them these giant expressive eyes. And we don't see them do that much, but they're just so expressive in the couple panels we see. And they, uh, it's, it's a really nice moment. I don't even know if those characters would have been illustrated under someone else's pen. There's really no no reason for them to be there. They have essentially one line, but there is so much into the design, whether it's the the sort of uh, crown and hat that one is wearing or the necklace of different uh, card suits. It's just beautiful design, super expressive, amazingly fun. There, there's, a, there's a floating dice holding a gun behind them, too. <laughs> yeah. We we also get mention of a of a luck dial, not mm-hmm. to be confused with a with an H dial with an H what? dial that dial L for luck. Isn't the luck dial in this week's Harley Quinn, Vince? That that's a different dial. Is it? I think. Yeah, that's like a that's like a um, punishment dial okay. or something. I it dials up like a random. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, a disaster dial perhaps. Disaster dial. I think that yeah. was maybe it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, they've um, the space pirates ended up with the luck dial and uh, and a dead lantern out of this. Yeah, and also uh, of note, there's two um, I guess like mercenary pirate figures on the bottom half of the page. One of which is a is controller. a controller. Yes, controller controller Moo M U, and we'll get to more on that character towards the end in a yeah. in a really wild scene. But uh, but yeah, that foreboding uh, in this moment anyway. Yeah. All right. So the next page we see. A uh, a spaceship that looks a lot like an airplane, like a commercial airliner in particular, and we see uh, <laughs> we we see the just this amazing character that speaks in half binary and half English. So zero one 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 zero zero hell yeah zero zero you know just it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's my favorite character in this thing. Yeah. <laughs> you put a hell yeah in this book, and yes, yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah, um, yeah. And, and at this point, it's very much you know, uh, laughing and cackling. We've got the luck dial. Nothing can stop us now. I love the way that that last nothing is lettered there. It's just so big and dumb and comic booky. Yeah. Yes. Which this book is very comic booky, oh, yeah. but in the best yes. way that Morrison, that no one else. I know we just you know we just gush over Morrison all the time. He's, he's the probably, best. He's the best. But like very few people can do this kind of comic booking in the way he does. Agreed. Um. Where it it feels, it feels classic. It feels true to the medium, in a, in a way that's kind of untouched by modern sensibilities. 
Yeah, the next page turn is an incredibly important one, too. Because we get the double-page spread of Hal Jordan laying in a field, watching a plane go by with the title of the arc, Intergalactic Lawman, or at least title of the issue, rather, above him. Um, This is an incredibly evocative double-page spread, even if there's not that much happening here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Vince, are you familiar with the uh, John Lennon Mind Games cover? Yeah, yeah, of course. The cover of Mind Games. Yep. Um, Also the first appearance of Hal in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love how... so, So I think we would all probably agree that Hal... Hal is kind of relatively a blank slate compared to other Green Lanterns, right? Like like from, of the main cast. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, if you know anything about Hal, Grant kind of establishes the important shit right away, which is that he's staring up watching planes all day, essentially, because the next time you see him, it's nighttime and he's in the same place. And, We'll get to it in the coming pages, but he's basically kind of this cocksure um, fighter pilot type, you know, very much like a Han Solo type, but he's not always written with with the the he's not always written with wit, you know, and I think Morrison, you know, reestablishes him still as that like flyboy kind of like head in the clouds type but adds a little more wit or self-awareness than we've come to expect from the character. And I think that's just, you know, from this very first page, you can kind of tell that that Grant is intent on hopefully making Hal into something a little bit more as far as the character is concerned. Yeah. Um, I, I promise I'm not being the pedantic guy here. But didn't we see Hal and Carol reconcile at the end of Vendity's run? We saw we saw them. They met, and I think they kissed. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't care. I, I just I just wanted to make sure I wasn't misremembering that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Morrison in, definitely in the... didn't read Vendity's run. <laughs> In the year 2018, it's we all need to just start treating these runs as like completely oh, separate absolutely. from one yeah, another. No, I just couldn't remember if that if that really happened or not. That's all. Or I yeah. guess that was Jergens. Yeah, he definitely didn't read Jergens' run. Oh, that was <laughs> Jergens' run. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like Jergens is exactly the kind of writer that you could see an interview with Morrison about. Where Morrison would be like, oh no, he's great, and like give this like very detailed explanation for why yes. Jurgens is a misunderstood artist, and then all of us are gonna have to eat shit because Grant is right. <laughs> well, now I can't remember. I guess it doesn't matter. I don't remember which book it was in now. I thought there was some hasty thing at the very end that was like that may have been that may have been the end of Venditti's run though. I think it was. I really don't remember. It, it felt it felt more recent than that, but it it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, yeah, where he's but like, you're definitely I think, right. I think we'll give it another shot or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Grant we, Grant definitely would have something incredible to say about Jerkins. Yeah. yeah. 
hands but down, like no doubt. Instead, he's just plowing Eve. <laughs> yep. Yep. How <laughs> oh, bones? That's for sure. <laughs> While meteors rain down. Of course, that's such a beautiful. I love that. That's that's yeah. That's good. Um, one thing I was thinking. Oh, in these pages, um, maybe it's just because these are like the first human characters we see. So this is the first time I really thought this, but there is like some interesting stylistic uh, similarity in Sharp's work here to Frank Whiteley. I think especially like in the facial expressions and then like the cloth, the like clothing has like a a kind of like rumpled wrinkling to it that I always like really associate with um, Quietly's line work. Like anytime he draws fabric, it kind of has that almost like lumpy quality to it. Mm -hmm. I, I was just getting like major Quietly vibes here. Interesting. I didn't see that, but that doesn't mean it's not there. I know what you mean about the yeah, especially here in like a few pages. Um, we'll get to. I'll call it out when we see it. But there are a few faces that like just feel very, um, very reminiscent of like older quietly. I think so. I'll call them out when we get there. Interesting. Uh, It is kind of funny that I'm looking at this, and and I'm looking at a print copy of this, by the way. but if you look at the page that begins with how looking up at the nighttime, the bottom right corner, we see Eve and she has the exact same smile that he has the next page when he says, I hate me too. Like their teeth are exactly <laughs> the same. Just a funny observation. That's all. I, uh, I sent Alice that panel. So when we get, we got this issue on Friday, Friday or something earlier in the day, Alice wrote something about like, I hate Hal Jordan <laughs> and I sent her the panel that says, I hate me too. <laughs> and she was like, Grant knows. <laughs> All right. So let's turn the page and uh, one of you boys take it away. Well, actually, you know what? Yeah. One of you boys take it away. All right. Where, what are we on? We're after the boning yes. page. Okay. So that Hal's walking down the road. Hal's eating a big hoagie. Looks pretty good. Um, well, and then a, like, wandering, dirty-looking, bearded drifter walks by. Bum fights. Bum fights is what they say, Bum yes. Fights. Yep. Yep. I prefer, uh, what's the, <laughs> what's the rest of development? Boy uh, fights? Boy fights. Baby Buster. Boy fights. <laughs> the Baby Buster shorts. Um, but the interesting thing about this character is that they're speaking they're speaking english when they come upon hal but they're saying things that don't make sense in context leading hal to believe that this is maybe not somebody who's where english is their native tongue um they they say sayonara sucker as they approach hal <laughs> thinking that that was a greeting so uh so this is clearly some sort of they they say was mine intel in error, which makes it sound like this is some sort of alien or something. This feels like this is like Men in Black. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. Um. And then and then the bum fight, the quote unquote bum fight, their words, not mine, uh, begins. 
Yes. Only only crazy's hitchy hunk <laughs> nowadays. I'll hitchy hunk. Um this like this section right here, um I guess like going ahead and going into the next page when the when the bum fight ensues, like it just is is a great example of how great Grant scripting is in this issue and how diverse and just weird it is. Mm-hmm. And the um, throw and the throwaway joke with the couple that drives by. Like there's no reason for that to exist other than it's a joke that gives the book character. Right, right. Um, on the, on the left hand side of that page with the couple driving by, where Hal's getting punched, that's like specifically the one that I was like, ooh, that reminds me of quietly. Oh, uh huh. Sure. Especially, especially like um, thinking about the way he, his work around like the Earth Two graphic novel era. Mm-hmm. Um. I like it a lot. Yeah, good call. I can see some uh, Flex Mentalo. Yes, yeah, that that would have been like pretty close too. I feel like, yeah. Ooh, that's a good book. We don't talk about that enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. bums rule. <laughs> bums rule. They do rule. Um, next page then. So. <laughs> Hal punches Hal's inside like, someone's brain, essentially. Yeah, basically, like Hal's in a fist fight with these with these three with these three characters, and he recognizes that they're a colony creature where they're all it's three people, but they're one thing, and so he punches this one particularly hard in the brain area, which again, uh, Liam Sharp depicts as like a bunch of brains in this guy's head. It's it's very gross, several lumpy brain, uh, like almost like individual brains, and then the other characters start to melt into this like gobbledy mess because they're a colony creature. It's an amazing depiction of what Grant is going for here. It, just total weirdness. I love the way that this comic embraces weirdness. So then, moving on. Then we get yet another Abin Sir homage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Chrysalon has crashed. Um, Hal finds this spaceship that uh, was transporting the criminals, and, um, you know, Chrysalon thinks he's going to die. <laughs> he says, uh, tell proto-crystal solutes we love them very much. My favorite line, maybe, in the whole comic. <laughs> It's a great line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I love uh, I love I love Hell's response. Tell him yourself. yourself not dying. Like like it's a completely normal thing to say, you know, like Oh man. <laughs> yeah, it really captures just like how good natured Hal can be. Like how he's just like the everyman, you know? He's just mm-hmm. like, Oh, hey pal, yeah. And there's a way to write that. See, I think that that's what, that's what writers get wrong with Hal sometimes. Hal is kind of like a blank, like, um, you know, 1950s serial hero, right? Where, without, without much of a personality. But 
if you write him as the everyman, like there is a way to write to the average hero, right? Am I am I wrong? Like this is how you do it. A little bit cocksure, a little bit cocky, a little bit witty, not over not like tons of personality, but just a good natured cocky flyboy. And you write to that. Yeah. And Grant Grant knows how to do it perfectly. Yeah. Give me the case details in twenty minutes. Hang tight. I'll be back. Like that's that's it. That's all yeah. he needs. It'll make it happen, you know. So on the next page is proof that he read Jurgen's run, because the <laughs> the power battery has been taken for repairs or whatever. Yeah. And so, um, then use mine, Green Lantern, an amazing panel, which leads mm-hmm. to an amazing one page. Uh, splash of the not splash, but a page of the oath, essentially. Yeah, which I know we uh, probably we have complained previously when we have like whole big lantern oath pages, um, but I feel like we can let this one slide because it's the first issue. Yeah, and it looks real good. Yeah, you you got to do it right if you're if you're Grant and this is your first issue on Greenlight. I mean, at some point you've got to do the oath. Right. Yeah. Um, well, this is also I a think book said... that there might be first-time Green Lantern readers popping on because of Morrison. That's yeah. true. But but I think like I think our complaint was that you know the the more often we'd see it issue after issue, the le- the diminishing returns. You know, if you if you wait several issues or if you do it like once per arc, that's like. That's like the big uh, wrestling signature move finish, you know. It's it's like the money shot, and if you do it every issue or every other issue, it's just not. It doesn't carry that weight with it. And I felt like, at a certain point, even in John's run, they're returning to that well way too much. Not only that, mm-hmm. but sometimes it takes place over five or six pages. <laughs> like like, like some character will say in brightest day, someone else will say in blackest night. Here, Liam Sharp gets it done on one single page, shows more transformation yeah. into the costume than we've seen in how many years? And it's just one panel, really. But just a really, this, really yeah. perfect page. This is yeah. like some of those uh, some of those uh, faster-paced episodes of Sailor Moon where all of a sudden the... the <laughs> you know, they didn't go through the whole trend. I know you know exactly what I'm talking about, Zach, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just like... <laughs> You're already animated. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Let's go. Okay. Um, this uh, the final pose is like again, kind of calling back to that like '80s uh, sensibility. Yeah. Like this is very evocative of like the you know original Star Wars poster Absolutely. or like Tron. Um, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. That is the big, uh, larger than life lightsaber beam that's flying off of. Uh, Luke, well, like Leia is weirdly wrapped around uh, her brother's leg. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also love the first person view of Hal punching the, the ring up to the yeah. battery. Just an interesting way to depict that. You know, that just little things that any artist could do, but most just don't when it comes to um, sequencing this stuff. There was also. I'm sure an unintentional little homage to Alan Scott here where the way Green Lantern is written, it's written in a font that is very like shaky around the edges. The way, the yes. way that Alan Scott's ring 
like the constructs are shaky around the edges. And I don't know if that was intentional yeah. or not, but it just reminded me of that. And that that Green Lantern's light word balloon there just looks so timeless and so perfectly DC. It looks like yeah, it looks like sixties. It looks like a sixties uh, font. Yeah. It almost looks like a font that they would use in like a creepy title or something. Yeah, yeah. a great page. In a book full of great pages, maybe my favorite one, actually. Just because I feel like you could give this to anyone who's never read a Green Lantern comic before, and it's all right there. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so next page. Uh, Wanton destruction from these, uh, the Arachnosapien and the robot creature, I believe Click was the name, maybe? With lots of K's and L's or something. And the forearm slime-loving thing. The, yeah, the forearm weird rat creature. That can uh, grow. Yeah. Um, and uh, just running through the financial district of this whatever whatever city this is. And Also, uh, we've got a Decemberist fan yeah. in the, <laughs> the bottom left. Yeah. Oh, the crane wife arrived at my door. In the that looks like what's his name from uh, the Hold Steady, Vince. Oh, uh, Franz yeah. Nicolay. Ah, yeah. Maybe there, maybe there's like a mid two thousands indie pastiche here. Is that is that could that be Nico Case behind? <laughs> I would say Jenny Lewis, but uh... okay, maybe I don't. Yeah, with that hair color, I don't know. That's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the Crane yeah. Life. Great album. Great album. It was the perfect, the perfect, the perfect, the perfect, <laughs> the perfect. Is that what Grant is perfect, saying here? This is perfect this, crime. What these guys these guys are they did it. Yeah. Perfect crime. Well, yeah. well uh, to be fair, they are bringing the whole city down. Yeah. Oh. We are we we are we're showing some deep Decemberist love tonight. Yes, we are. God dang. Um wow. Oh wow! I love that. There, there are two things. One is the last panel of of this page, and the next thing is the first panel on the next page. That are just so perfect. First of all, Hal yelling "Space Police" is <laughs> so fucking good. I love it. It's so dumb, but I love it. But then the page turn happens, and nobody panic. Chill. I've parentheses Green Lantern's got this. That <laughs> that is directly yeah. referencing the first issue of the New Fifty Two, right there. Because <laughs> Grant read Jeff Johns' run. Yep, of course. Uh, I love the I love the pacing of this page. It's amazing. Yep. Scooping up the the citizens, dropping a sixteen ton <laughs> construct on the villain. Just boom, boom. That's and all. It both takes. of these are like classic Hal constructs. Hal's constructs are always super simple, just very like I don't want to say by the numbers, but he he's not doing the architectural stuff that John Stewart's doing. Like the boxing glove, he's a he's a blunt instrument. Yeah, the boxing glove was always his, you know his his construct of choice. So these are just perfect. Um, yeah, there. This this is another great page. And again, like Sharp puts it all in one page, where some other artists would have each of these things taking up too much real estate. Yeah. 
Yeah. But then, you know, we get to the next page and you, you know, you call Hal a blunt instrument, but he, he defeats this multi-armed beaver thing <laughs> by, by outsmarting it. That's right. Yeah. 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 It's science, baby. It is science. Yeah. He essentially gets him to grow so big that his thigh bone shatters. <laughs> Which is another disgusting <laughs> yes, image on the next page. Like, just a very gross, weird image. It is. It's weird body horror yeah. stuff. Lo- yeah. It looks like a naked Donald Trump. Uh... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> with with, uh... with uh, hands that are too scale. Of, of course. course, yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, I've never heard any complaints about <laughs> Um... But oh man, just so good. So that's so the yeah. next page is is the thigh bone shattering and the horrible yep. uh, image therein. Then we see Hal sort of um, taking showing them that the uh, that their um, dial is fake. He puts them in a jar of what appears this is guacamole, right? Isn't that what it's supposed to say? We think. I don't know. You see, like a G U A. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be like a jar of guacamole, and then uh, yeah, and yes, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. It's got to be. <laughs> that's so yeah, weird. Because who buys guacamole in a jar? Am I right? I don't know. And then Eve was talking earlier about how she bought that hot salsa he yeah. likes. So maybe he's, maybe he's in like a, a festive mood here. Maybe it says Guantanamo. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Nice I don't think it does, but no. And this is a very, this is a very like per, police procedural page where like maybe it's the beginning of an episode of a of a cop show or something where it's like they lock, they get the easy mark, they lock up the easy criminal, yep. and they're like, ah, this, this thing you're going after, it's a fake anyway, you little piece of shit, you know, like. <laughs> It's it's the minor bad guy who's like pathetic before the big before the bigger shit hits the fan. Yeah. And new Oa it is. This sequence is awesome. The whole everything on New Oa is so carefully constructed and presented with these like with these spread they're like one page spreads, but they're like stacked images. It's almost like there's panels. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Can can I just throw shade at somebody who's not Grant Morrison here for a second? <laughs> yeah. So I feel like this is exactly the argument against Tom King's nine panel grid fixation, where like mm-hmm. the nine panel grid is trotted out all the time to make things feel important and to make things feel Alan Morey, right? But when you look at these pages, there's just so much life and so much implied movement and so much interesting perspective and when you chop up a comic into nine panels all the time you can't do this sort of stuff no and you know this, you know what this reminds me of that we've had recently that? that i also liked a lot the uh the pages in the last chapter of the witching hour yes um, yes 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 it's very reminiscent of that and that was also very good 
both of I feel like both of these issues are kind of um, not not necessarily like critiques against, but you know, arguments for you know other styles outside of the nine panel grid. You like you can do um, you know high gravity storytelling with something other than a nine panel grid. Yeah. And there's there's a really good use of the like circle imagery here. Like the mm-hmm. first page is set against a a the planet of New Oa. The second page, the top of it is sort of spherical, and they're looking in the Book of Oa, and there's a circle within a circle, which looks a lot like the Doctor Manhattan symbol. Just saying. Um, I mean, it's one hundred percent the Doctor Manhattan symbol, yeah, right? It has to be. And then, you know, we'll come back to these pages. I'm just running through quickly. The next page has the central battery and then another sort of circular thing. The page after that, every single panel has a circle somewhere in the middle of the panel. Um, It's just, there is such good use of shape and space and layout. This whole sequence is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so let's let's go back and talk about it a little bit. Yeah. By the way, more <laughs> the lettering in this page in particular reminded me specifically of um, whoever lettered uh, the Silver Surfer, the Dan Slot, uh, Mike Allred, Silver Surfer. Interesting. Like, okay, I didn't read that uh, specifically. The um, the like the omniscient notes, like New Oa. Homeworld of the Immortal Gardens of the Galaxy, that part, mm. or universe rather, that looks a lot like, um, like that run. Yeah. So who lettered this? Let me go back and talk talk uh, about this. And this I'll go... is I can tell you right now. I had the page open one second ago. Um, Olaf. Um, oh yeah, Steve Olaf. See, I have no idea if it's the same person or if if Olaf did that other book or not, but. Uh, anyway, so we have uh, we have Hal talking to a guardian, and one of my favorite things about the guardian here is that first of all, do we ever find out which guardian it is? Does it say? No, I don't think so. But I think that this guardian looks way more alien and way less like perfect little green gazoo than we've seen yeah. in the past. <laughs> it's it's probably not Ganthet, which is already kind of like starting us off on a different yes, foot. Yes, exactly. Because anyone else would have just put Ganthet here. Yeah. Joe Sabino lettered okay. uh, Silver Surfer, by the way. Yeah, it's interesting that you guys bring that up about the the guardians and and it maybe not being Ganthet or not obviously being Ganthet. It almost feels. I was gonna say about this sequence that it's so beautiful and so sprawling, and it's very much about the guardians and and why this all exists. And yet, I feel like Grant is maybe pulling back a little bit from giving the guardians personality. Mm-hmm. Because, I, I mean, I haven't I haven't read much Green Lantern before John's, but like, how much individual personality did they ever have before that? Do you have any sense of? Um, 
Ganthet had a bit because he was the last guardian. Like, all the guardians mm-hmm. were killed by Hal Jordan at the end of uh, Emerald Twilight. And then when Kyle is the is the first, is the rather the only Green Lantern, Ganthet is the one who gives him the ring. So that, that's sure. the beginning, at least from my reading, of there being personality for the Guardians. Okay. And it's just for that one Guardian. Yeah. It just kind of, it kind of feels like this is more about the functional purpose of all of this than giving any of these people a, a, a personality in this case. And I, I wonder how much that will continue. I mean, he could turn around and and do a 180 on that in issue two, but it, it this feels like it's much more of a grand, almost sacred uh, thing that they've got going on here, versus you know you know what I'm saying, yeah. versus something that we're going to be let inside to as far as a personality is concerned. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this Dr. Manhattan symbol. That is what that is, right? It, it, I feel like it has to be because just in the context of what's happening in the page, this Guardian is talking about how um, you know recent analysis has found flaws, revisions, and amendments that have taken place in the, in the Book of Oa without their knowledge. The Book of Oa is no longer trustworthy. Um, that mm-hmm. 100% seems to square with, you know, Dr. Manhattan screwed with stuff and now we don't know. Um, which I want to note, there are some like interesting parallels. And I get this is my major Green Lantern touchstone. There are some like interesting parallels with John's run in this issue um, because that issue was like very at least early on focused on like discrepancies and like secret prophecies in the book of Oa. Yeah. And things like that. Um, because that was also another period of time where, um, like DC continuity was very much in upheaval because of infinite crisis and, and 52 and all of that stuff happening. Um, so it's interesting that we're at a similar point, time in terms of you know those sort of um kind of like meta mechanics happening what i think is interesting here is that morrison is clearly referencing doomsday clock but i think this is all we're ever going to get from that like i don't i think you're probably right i don't see anything else happening here but this just again shows what a great writer morrison is he can bring the concepts that are going on in this big event book to this book without bogging it down. It feels of the time and of the event, but it has nothing to do with the actual things happening in that book. Mm-hmm. You're, you're right, because in a way, this almost could be like saying, like, okay, we're taking this concept off the table because it's not reliable anyway. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we've talked on the show before about I think some people think that like because Grant Morrison is this huge name that he's just going to kind of go and do whatever he wants. And I certainly think he has the sway to do a little bit of that, you know, but he's also been a team player. Yeah, I think as as long as he's been with D.C., um, you know, going back to his Justice League days. Final Crisis, the Batman stuff certainly had a lot of um, 
you know, he was kind of doing his own thing, but like things would happen in other books and he would, he would be respectful of that, you know? Um, I mean, even something as simple as like, he brought Barry Allen back in Final Crisis. And I'm mm -hmm. sure that was an editorial mandate. But he was able to work it in the book in a way that felt really organic and important and natural. And I feel like yeah. I feel like that's what this is. This is bringing in a big concept organically and not making it feel forced. Yes. All right, so we turn the page and we get um, the Guardians essentially saying that because they cannot rely on the Book of Oa, they have to rely on themselves. We are the law, which is, I believe, the tag the tagline from the Judge Dredd film starring Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I am the law. I am the law. Uh, guess, uh, who was the car co-star of that movie, Vince? Uh, what? Uh, Paulie Shore. Rob Schneider. <laughs> ah, I was you close. close. <laughs> the judge. <laughs> Arresting people. Uh, did you? Yeah. Dread. He always ordered three pieces of juice cake. <laughs> you like the juice? <laughs> yeah, you you want to end the sketch? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, end, I'll end the sketch. It goes on too long. It gets very boring. Um, I probably shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> probably not. Our Greek <laughs> audience will turn on you. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so essentially here we get a um, sort of narration from the Guardian talking to Hal about sort of the where the universe is right now and where Oa and the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps fit into it. It it, it it's all very um, table setting for sort of the tone of the book, but I loved this one line. In our service, there are X-ray lanterns, radio lanterns, gamma lanterns, <laughs> microwave lanterns. The reach of our peacekeeping force extends across all scales and wavelengths. So great. That's such Grant Morrison bullshit. It is. <laughs> it's very good. Um, you know, I, I read that and couldn't help but wonder if these are, like, different types of... I mean, we've already seen the ultraviolet... Right, yeah. lanterns. I'm like, is this a thing? Clearly, Grant has read Grant, Scott Grant, Snyder's Justice League run. <laughs> Grant Morrison is like that meme where it's like, um, "Oh, Scott Snyder, ultraviolet lanterns. You are like little child. <laughs> yeah. I have X-ray lanterns, radio lanterns, gamma lanterns, and microwave lanterns." <laughs> oh, I also uh, just you know a couple of panels later we see. The Guardians say, a traitor within our ranks will shortly be uncovered. We already know who it will be. I feel like that is something that is such a classic comic book trope, too, right? Or just a classic fiction trope of sort of a, someone from the inside bringing it down. But I have, mm -hmm. I have no doubt that Morrison has an interesting plan for this. And I know, I have to admit, like we're sounding like the biggest fanboys in the universe when doing this this review here. <laughs> I mean, are. I'm I'm not objective. I will say that right not now. A, not at all. I will say that I am probably the least Morrison fanboy of the three of us, and I love Grant Morrison. But you know, but you guys <laughs> are, are really you know probably bigger fans. But what I'll say is this: that 
everything in his history shows that the traitor won't be somebody you expect. Or if it is, they'll have an interesting reason for it. I was like, if this was in another writer's book, I would probably roll my eyes. Because the concept's been done so many times. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I, it's being done, isn't it? It's being done, or it was done in Titans, like, just six months ago <laughs> yep. or something. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like... I, I also think it's interesting... The the Guardian's little monologue here is so long. And then you get to the end of it and <laughs> he talk. says, Now do you understand? Let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> um and I can't imagine that Hal or my you know, I'm putting myself in, in his shoes here. I, I'm like, What wait, what did you do? what were we talking <laughs> about? <laughs> the cosmic um, ballet goes on. Yes. <laughs> well done. It's a deep Simpsons cut for our, our, our unfamiliar listeners. But that's perfect, though. That is like that is that is this. Yeah. Oh man. Okay, so are we ready for the last story page? Yeah. It's a doozy. So deep inside Asteroid X, headquarters of controller Moose, Muse, Black Stars. Who wants to take this away? I don't know if I even can. (laughs) Zach or Brian, you do it. I nominate you. So he he did read Venditti's green lantern but maybe not i don't know <laughs> the dark stars are back and they're good again well, but they're the black, black stars. But these are black stars all oh, these are the black stars you're right it's different oh man um is that a completely new concept it's i i, I think so i don't think you can google black stars and find anything from dc yeah. you, you find a good um al- a really good a rap, rap album, album. yeah vital of quality yeah. and uh and most f most deaf, yeah, yeah. Uh, Black Star is Rachel Berkowitz, yeah. a supervillain, an enemy to Supergirl, born in Poland. She was raised by Nazis. You also, you yeah. also oh, get the it, last Bowie album. I just want to put that out there. Sorry. Yeah, that's good too. And and uh, you get an episode of uh, an old p- podcast from yep. two two dipshits. Uh, two two dipshits. And if you Google Asteroid X, I'm pretty sure you get uh, Magneto's Asteroid Planet. Uh-huh. <laughs> I knew that sounded familiar. Yes, you're right. So anyway. But Asteroid X is just such a like again, that's such a pulpy name yep. for like a villain base. It's so good. So and I love the last panel is just amazing. So let's let's try and unpack that last panel. I don't even so know. So they have the luck dial. Now, as Moo promised you, the antimatter lantern is within our grasp. Commence the vivisection. Extract the heart of the weaponer. The weaponer, rather. The weaponer, yeah. Now, the weaponer is the person on Quark who makes the. That's the weaponer. That's the weaponer. Is it the weaponer? It's not the weaponer. Okay. The weaponer. The weaponer is nothing to to our current okay. knowledge. Okay. The weaponer is the Quark. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So I so I wonder if the term weaponeer is just being used as a generic like the the person who wields the weapon. Right. 
Right. But this antimatter lantern. Yeah. Yeah. Is is basically like a, a yellow lantern howl. Well, so when they say I thought that was the weapon when they here. S- is the yellow lantern howl. Who's right. kind of two faced. When, but when they when say the, now as promised as promised you now as Moo promised you, the antimatter lantern is within our grasp. Is that literally like the person they see I in see front of you? No. Yeah. I, I thought that I thought that as to mean that there is an antimatter lantern, an actual lantern that they will be getting soon. I thought so too. And they need this they need these objects. They need to the get heart it. of the weaponier to, to get it. Yeah, and the weaponier is some sort of yellow lantern HAL amalgamation, which can I tell you? Maybe Grant Morrison read Jeff Johns Justice League run. Well, not Justice League, but an issue of Action Comics that he wrote back in before Flashpoint, Action eight fifty six, wherein there is a bizarro Hal Jordan. Who is a that's, yellow lantern? Well, that's what I was thinking of, and I thought he was antimatter. Was he antimatter? Like, is that? Well, I guess because he's bizarro, he wouldn't be. But that's what I was thinking of with this antimatter lantern. Was the bizarro Hal Jordan? Well, so that yes, so that's who you think this is. But I don't remember that. I don't remember that that lantern was antimatter. Maybe that's not. A yeah, deep see, I cut guys. That yeah. I mean. Uh, Zurin R. <laughs> oh man. Um. Yeah, I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you about that. I mean, I, I think that I think that it's certainly possible that this is that um lantern, but I I still think that this antimatter lantern is something. Because earlier in the issue, they the the uh, Maxim Tox says antimatter, you know, yeah. like right is being attacked by something with antimatter. So, which I think we were maybe I the way I read it, that this person here who is captured now is the thing that killed Tox. You think so? I think so. That's how I read this. And then later, Controller Mew caught him. So why? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe. I I don't have strong feelings on this one way or the other. Yeah. But I think it's the perfect ending for this issue. And again, I'm going to kiss Grant Morrison's butt here because it's not important that we understand exactly what this is. Oh, not it's, at all. It, yeah, it's it's almost most important that we look at this page and go, "Holy hey, shit!" Yeah. The what the fuck is <laughs> which the, is definitely what the I did. What the fuck is yeah. more important than what the fuck it actually is? Exactly. Again, it's a weird, gruesome science thing that they're science, like sci-fi thing that they're showing yep. us. Body horror, you know. It's like a Nine Inch Nails video or some <laughs> shit. Yeah. Now, if there's if there's ever evidence that Grant Morrison listens to the DC three cast, <laughs> it is the coming soon double page spread that follows this. Captain, yeah, because we love shit like this. Yeah, we love it. 
Now let's let, let's take uh, each of these four images and talk about them. Yes. So in the upper left hand corner, we have three presumably villainous characters. Mm-hmm. Do we recognize any? Uh, of them? Well, one of them looks like a Durlin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know that I recognize the other ones, but and the... and that could just be any old Durlin. Right. Right, right. They two of them are wearing presumably Black Star uniforms. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the other is anything anyone's guess. Yeah. Um, the second panel sees Hal and Ollie together again. Ah, uh, the the hard traveling heroes. Yeah. Which again is such a perfect Morrison thing to be digging up a a beloved run of the past and making it his own. Uh, uh, we're going to kind of go straight across here to the shattered uh, b- battery. It looks like it's not the power battery because it's small enough that somebody's eye is right behind it. So that's a power battery shout a battery being a lantern itself being shattered, not the power battery. It almost looked like, it almost looks like uh Chris Ellen's. Yes, possibly. That- it- it kind of does. The design is similar, yeah. 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 And then the which, which, which. Let me just before sure. we move on, like a ladder, a, a lantern shattering, or like you know something happening to the power battery is again like a trope of every Green Lantern run. Yes. Basically, you have to have like, oh shit, the ring doesn't work for a little while or something. Yeah. But let's talk about that last panel, guys. Yeah. Oh man. It's a bunch of alternate Green Lanterns. Yeah, which it's again, it's the Batman Green Lantern from what's that story called? Um, Emerald Knight. Uh, I think it's Emerald, Emerald Knight. I I thought it was uh in I thought it was like in Blackest Night. Bat- Regardless, it's it's Batman as a Green Lantern. It's Green Lantern Batman. Black, yeah. <laughs> Emerald Knight, Emerald Knight that, is that. something else, isn't it? It might be, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some somebody will correct us. Uh, a certain somebody will correct us. Here, here, I'll correct us right okay. now. It's uh, Batman in Darkest okay, Night. Oh, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, we've got the Avancer one from the the Pulp Multiversity yeah. World. Hmm. Um, I don't super, I recognize a few of these like from the multiversity guidebook, but I can't place them at yeah. all. Um, yeah. Like the one that's like a, like a more simpler drawing. Um, all the, all the way to the bottom, right? Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a mad magazine. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Um, Alfred e. Newman. what's his name? What's his name? Alfred um, e. Newman. No, the Alfred artist e. that like Kurtzman. Shut up. It's like a Kurtzman yeah. drawing. Um, but this is great because, you know, we just got the um, the Council of Flashes or whatever yeah. in Williamson's run. And this, uh, it'll be great to see Morrison do that with Green Lantern for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... We've gone through the issue page by page. We've slobbered all over it. 
But ultimately, this is everything we wanted, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is the perfect antidote to a hundred issues of Green Lanterns and how Jordan the Green Lantern Corps. Yeah. Because we got I think almost exactly a hundred issues out of those two books together. We got it hundred and seven. Yeah. Are are you are you talking about the just the rebirth books? Yes. Yeah. And then you add in the I guess 32 new 52 issues after John's, which those were better after mm-hmm. John's after John's were they? Yeah. After were John's. They I, I liked some of those. I just remember how's greasy hair. Well, okay. So those last 12 were really bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, this is this is so great, and we we know that we have at least two years of this, right? Because didn't Grant say that he had started writing? He said he started work on year two. Yeah, yeah. He, so we'll get we'll get the first year, and then there will be a reboot, and then we'll have like an eight month hiatus, and then Hal will be dead or something, so he has to redo the whole book, and <laughs> then he'll then he'll have some artists that. Um... That that wasn't really intended to be on the book, and Chris Burnham is going to have to come in and redraw it for the uh, omnibus. Oh my gosh, I forgot that happened. Oh, oh. what issue was that again? That was the death of Damien issue. Yeah, who drew that originally? I can't remember. I don't remember. Wasn't it like wasn't it like half Burnham I though, think and it then was, it was half? Yeah. yeah, that's a deep cut. Good, good, good job there, Vincey. Yeah, they're coming out with those Batman uh, Morrison Omnibi, mm-hmm. and I'm so tempted, but I think after dropping money on uh, the Final Crisis one, and I didn't tell you guys this, but I went to Half Price Books, and they had the DC One Million Omnibus there. Uh huh. Um, I don't. I don't think I can do. It. I don't think I can justify another Morrison Omnibus purchase just yet. See, at this, point. I might invest in that One Million one. Yeah. We'll see. Anyway, so let's take a break now. Uh, Let's all go clean up after uh, drooling all over ourselves for an hour. Yeah, drooling. Uh, Yep. I'm I'm keeping it clean. (laughs) Um, And we'll be back in just a minute with more DC3Cast. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back. Before we get into our our uh, six books we want to talk about briefly this week, we want to talk about our list. So the good list this week has Adventures of the Super Sons and the Unexpected on it. Uh, the OK list has Green Arrow, Harley Quinn, and the United States versus Murder Inc. on it, 
And the bad list has Nightwing, Suicide Squad, what's it called? Black Files? Suicide Yes. If you say and so. And The Curse yeah. of Brimstone. I will say, I said this to Vincent Zach before the show, I tried to read Suicide Squad, but because I didn't read the last pointless bullshit miniseries, I was totally lost. So, there we go. But... Well, you'll 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 be surprised to find that um, there were some villains who briefly acted like heroes. What? Yeah. Yeah. Weird, it's... right? I mean, I know this is an overused term, but that's twisted. <laughs> but we're gonna talk mm. instead about Batman number fifty-eight, written by Tom King, illustrated by Michael Janin, and um, the Penguin as a secret. According to the cover. <laughs> Penguin <Yeah>. secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this issue, we get uh, we get the Penguin essentially um, bowing before Bane in prison, but then seemingly going against Bane when he is released and trying to cut a deal with Batman. I have to say, like from a plot perspective, I didn't hate this issue. Mm-hmm. I think that plot-wise, it's an interesting place to take the character. I think it gives him something to do that's different than what's happening elsewhere with other Bat-villains at the moment. Um, and I think that the Penguin is the type of cocky asshole who would stand up to Bane. So all of that kind of tracks from a plot perspective. But in terms of dialogue and just putting together an issue, this is some more Tom King bullshit. I don't want to read. I didn't hate this issue. That's all I have to say. I didn't hate this <laughs> issue. Yeah, I, I think the characterization of, of Penguin is spot on. I think this is one of the... I think this is one of the characters King has written in this book that doesn't feel just like a caricature of the character or like or like a weird subversion where where it's it's only this one thing that doesn't resemble it's almost subverting the character and that doesn't resemble the character at all. I'm thinking of like the the way the Joker was written during the War of Jokes and Riddles. Um, which was just awful, uh, or like how Batman is from time to time completely unrecognizable to me. This penguin feels right, I think. Yeah. Um. So good job there. Um. One thing that occurred to me while reading this is that, especially compared to, and again, I don't want to just, I don't want to spend my life on this show comparing everything to Grant Morrison because, again, I, I'm biased in Grant's favor, but also like 99% of writers are not Grant Morrison in my estimation. Right. But just for a specific example of what I mean when I talk about, and this isn't necessarily Tom King's fault either. It it could also be Janine's fault, but the Tom King's run in general to me, whether it's in the art or whether it's in the plotting and the pacing feels so spare to me and i'm looking at the double page spread of penguin sort of venerating himself before bane 
and I see Bane sitting there on a pile of skulls and the penguin and flashpoint Batman uh, standing behind him this, this time that's the only one of the villains who's behind Bane. You know, there was that famous picture after the wedding of, of all the villains kind of behind Bane. And I just look at that room and I just think there's so, there's so little going on here and it doesn't really add to the mood. I thought that one page, I think Brian, I think you called it bullshit when it happened, but, but I kind of liked it. That one page where all the villains were behind Bane and kind of the, the full arc of the plot that Tom King has going here was sort of revealed in that moment because that was the first time that it felt like this was a fully realized. And I don't, I don't think, I think that's one issue in the course of at the time it was 50 issues that felt that way. And so ultimately I think the run is still a failure, but I thought that that moment felt like, okay, there is a bigger world here. Whereas when I I look at these individual issues and arcs and i think these are so disconnected and they feel so apart from one another and i feel like this page is so empty and it's not for any effect it's it doesn't add you know but that's that's tom king's whole run it's it's image after image of just emptiness you know um it's stories that last 20 pages but they could be told in five you know uh and so i think like this issue starts out really strong, a strong characterization of the penguin. And then you get the second half of the issue, which is just this like recitation of whatever that poem is. Right. Mm. And I don't recognize the poem and I didn't look it up because I can't be arsed yeah. to do that for Tom King's Batman. A very but, Tom King thing to do. But yes, it's a, again, and it's just overdone. You know, it's one thing if a writer does this once in a while, but he does it all the time. And, and okay, I got the point. I'm pretty sure these were, words from this poem were written on the gravestones mm-hmm. that, that uh, Cobblepot made for him and, and his, his uh, departed, right? So then we didn't need the entire poem running through the end of this comic right it comes off as pretentious at that point i think literary illusions are fine but like there's a limit to them there's diminishing returns the longer you go on with them right yeah um how long do you think thomas wayne just stands by bane all day (laughs) (laughs) i forgot that was even supposed to be flashpoint batman Oh yeah, baby. I forgot he's a villain now. That's the button. Had had to convince uh tried to convince Bruce to stop being Batman, yeah. you know. Which again, I I don't necessarily think that that's a bad it's a very comic booky plot point. Right. I think it's it it has the potential to be good. But as it stands in this in this gaping 100 issue run with just you know, tons of dead air. It feels like classic, it's classic not... boomer. He, he tried to get his son to stop voting Democrat and he wouldn't do it. So he, he ruined his wedding and wow. Oh, we all know that, uh, Bruce Wayne is a fascist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe. Okay. Maybe Thomas is really woke and <laughs> Bruce is the filthy 1%. Tom, 
Tom, okay, Thomas Wayne's a Bernie bro. Yeah. Yes, okay. Um, you know Bruce has, like, multiple usernames on alt-right message boards that are, that are Batman-related. <laughs> oh, you yeah. Know. He's a he's a Daily Stormer guy, for sure. DRK, K, DRK like, uh, NGT or something is his username for everything. Yep. And I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't put it past Bruce to use the Joker as an avatar, just as like a curve. Oh, possibly, curveball. yeah, 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 yeah. Alfred's a neolib. Yep, yep. Alfred's a neolib. Um. Uh, uh Commissioner Gordon is a never Trump. Yes, absolutely. So like... Yes. <laughs> I think I think that Alfred might actually be like a monarchist, like he just. Thinks so. <laughs> yeah, queen and country and all that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. you're right. Um, you're right. Babs, uh, Babs is like uh, the like uh, gentrification left, yeah, yeah. like like liberal, but. I mean, I guess that's kind of neolib, but I think she she's more left leaning. She's more well meaning than that. Yes, I agree. But but still goes to Burnside and gentrifies it. Yes. Um, who's the dirtbag left? Dick. Dick is the dirtbag left. So. Really? Yeah. Okay. All who's right. A, who's a, All who's right. a better fit for that? So are you saying Jason Todd is like a? Uh, a young, like a young college conservative, like a Charlie Kirk. I think, I, I, think, I think Damien. I think it's Damien. Yes. Yes. Who am I kidding? It's Damien. Yeah. 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 Damien is like a doomsday prepper. <laughs> the, the, Damien is totally the guy who like, he is the Richard Spencer of the, of Gotham. We're like, he's trying to put a presentable oh, yeah. face on a horrible ideology. ideology. God, you're damn. It's true. I mean that's basically Batman six six exactly yeah. Oh no, that's a grim future. I think I, we need to get off of this <laughs> before I get too. It's, it's too twisted. We've been through this. Yeah. All right. Uh, you were saying how this issue begins to work though, Vince, and then falls apart. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. I don't really have more to say about it than that. I, I mean, it's not one of the. It's not like uh, the Bane issues of the War War on Jokes and Riddles where I just hated every minute of it. Um. I just think it it has some of the same shortcomings that we've complained about before, but like started out with so much promise. Yeah, I do. I do like that King is kind of rotating through the the Rogues Gallery. You know, uh, I think that's a very back in the seventies. So I just made it through seventies Detective. I, in my, I don't in my know how you through. did that so fast. Oh, dude! In the last week, I think I read almost a hundred issues. Um, but like the Batman story, like I skip anything that's not bat related. And there were some backups that like, again, I couldn't be bothered to read, but, um, all the bat stuff, it's like, you know, they're like 12, 15 pages. So it's they're They read like twice as fast as a modern issue of a comic. Um, but anyway, uh, Steve Englehart and, Len Wein go through the the late seventies. They pretty much bring back all of the 
villains like the Joker and Two-Face and the Penguin and the Riddler who had been gone for like the better part of the decade because early 70s Batman was very spooky. Like it was trying to be spooky where it was either it was either like a spooky crime or mystery or it was like uh, mobster gang stuff. Very little supervillain in the early 70s. And then towards the end, they just started knocking him out. Like, Ra's al Ghul is back. The Joker, the freaking Joker's back. Here we're introducing a bunch of new villains, too, you know? And, like, it reminds me of what Tom King's doing. And there's even some stuff where, like, Batman loses a fiancé. It's uh, Silver St. Cloud is her name. Um, that really echoed the the Selena Kyle stuff in this run. So um, it's it's way better than any of this, but... It, it really reminds me of that 70s Batman in the way that it's just cycling through these villains now. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Border Town number three, written by Eric M. Esquivel, illustrated by Ramon Villalobos. This book continues to be dope. Zach, uh, you, you got anything to say about this one? I mean, this. I think this is the best issue so far. What uh, like what do you what do you like about it so much? Um, I don't know. There's just so, I I I feel like this is um, you know, this is the issue where the band is together. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. they have their purpose. I feel like we have a pretty good feel for the the four main characters. Um. There's just a lot of like fun, playful dialogue here. I love the I love the bit like in the vice principal's office. Uh, well, I mean that part was just crazy. Yeah, I think that's like definitely kind of like the standout moment in this series so far. But the part right before that, um, where um, Amy like sets off the fire alarm and uh, the other uh, girl, her name is Julieta, yes. right? Yeah, and, and um, you know, she's like, you know, makes a joke about um, the the one kid and, and Amy being a thing, you know, calls him his, his girlfriend, and she's like, seriously, Julieta, over a fucking boy? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that moment was just, like, very, very good. Yeah. Vince, what do you think of this issue? I loved it. <laughs> I just don't want to hog the mic because I could. This is another one I could talk about till the cows come home. But um, I mean, this is by far the strongest Vertigo title we've seen so far, and we've seen good Vertigo titles. This, that everything that's come out from Vertigo has been at least good to very good. But this is absolutely great. Yeah, El, El Cheeto Cabra. Yeah. El Cheeto that Cabra. Was... That's a very cute yeah. scene. And c- coming right off of another a Frank Miller Ronin T-shirt reference, which oh, every yeah. every issue of this has had some sort of reference to another comic in it. Yeah, we see the uh, Aztec helmet again in this issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing that I love most about this comic is that it is unmistakably set in our current zeitgeist and it is unmistakable who the villains are i feel like um 
sometimes when you do when you try to do political books and i probably i kind of understand why this happens when you are writing like a big two book like a like a mainline dc title like i understand i don't like it necessarily but i understand why when you write green arrow and you say well green arrow is going to be an unabashed liberal but then like somewhere in there you sneak in like well you know the there's a bad part to this too and and the other side has some good quality you know like i feel like in a lot of uh corporate comics you just have to do that right but in this comic being that it's under the vertigo banner and i think that they probably are willing to be a little bit more brash with it, it it's unmistakable that it's that it's uh, denouncing the sorts of things that are going on in America right now, you know, when it comes to uh, immigration and, you know, they, I mean, they, they show freaking ice agents that are unmistakably labeled as ice agents. They don't come up with some parallel, right? Right. They don't come up, they don't call them uh, cold agents or something like that and come up with some different acronym. They're even like what Blake's father is shouting at the end of the issue like oh yeah it's raw it's, 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 uh, yeah but like like come on say it it's, <laughs> no it's can it's too raw too fucked up too raw fucked up. and it is. Yeah, this is this is not nhl player where he jabs this is, this is yeah uh, <laughs> this is much more than that but but like even that moment like in in less ballsy hands he would have just been like, you know, there would have been some very generic language about the various groups he's railing against. It would have been coded. Yeah, it would have been coded. And this is not coded yeah. at all. And that is a three percenter. They have a three percenter flag in their den or whatever, uh-huh. which is a, a very specific group of people. You know, it's you, you and you see the 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 cops or the ICE agents or whoever whoever's in that one scene when they talk about how the monsters visually appear to be whatever the person is afraid of, you know, Colin Kaepernick jersey. It's basically Colin Kaepernick and and, Trayvon Martin. Martin. Yeah. And again, and Infowars is referenced because the, you know, once they're shot, they, they manifest as lizard people. And of course the info Rorschach's whole thing is that uh, lizard people are, folks, you know, o- Obama and, and Hillary are, are lizard people or whatever it is, you know. Um, I love it. I love that they don't back down from that. I know that at least uh, Ramon Villalobos gets shit online oh, for this yeah. book or has mm-hmm. gotten shit from just the worst people online, of course. You know, the same, the usual suspects, I, I've mentioned right? this before. I got shit for reviewing this book online. Yeah, for even reviewing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just it it comes with the territory, but like to to know that it's coming and you put it out there in this form anyway is just it's brave in the way that a comic can be brave, you know? It's and 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 not only is it brave, but it's just a damn good comic. Like the way it's structured, the ba- the backstory at the beginning of the issue that is interest- is interestingly woven into the rest of the story doesn't overstay its welcome isn't full of a ton of like what I love about it is that it's not full of um exposition it it's, it's not the witching hour stuff right exactly it's you see this backstory but it's narrating it in this kind of weirdly v- vaguely parallel again it's like parallel paralleling current events 
and then it sort of drifts into the year 2018 and the narration keeps on going to kind of show you, you know, you know, in some ways things aren't all that different or this is what's still, you know, this is what happened back then. This is how it had an effect on what's going on right now in the context of this story. And it's, it's like masterfully structured and the art is great. So like everything about this book is great beyond it just being a product of its time and, and a fantastic representation of the zeitgeist, you know, Mm -hmm. I it's, it's no surprise that I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's going to be among the best books when I submit uh, my top 10 for the year, it's going to be on there across all of comics. Yeah. Can't, can't and and of course the vice principal has the freaking uh, freaking Donald Trump uh, presidential portrait in in his office, mm-hmm. as if there wasn't too fine a point put on right. that scene already. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump over to uh, Deathstroke number is it thirty seven? Yes, thirty seven. Written yes, by Christopher yeah. Priest, illustrated by Fernando Pissarin. This is of all the issues of Deathstroke. This is the most mind fucky of the issues. There's a lot of weird deception going on here, and I'm interested to see what Zach thinks of this issue. I love this issue. See, that's interesting to me because I feel like you have been the least on board with this with this book. Not, not, not that you've been. Not, no. not that you've been. No, that is no. not true. No, I. No, I'm saying overall, I, not not from this arc, but like I've I've only been the least on for this book. I I would say in the Batman arc. Okay, maybe. Okay, that's fair. Just for those. Okay, six that's issues. fair. This and is the, this the is the kind issue. of stuff that I love. This I love this stuff. And Vince, what you're gonna say? And I was saying I was so down on the first issue of this arc. Yeah, what'd you think of this issue? Well, let's hear Zach. We want to hear from Zach. Let's let's Zach finish what you have to say. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily have a ton to say about it, other than I do love all of just oh. the mind trickery. All, you know, all of the the double crossing misdirection mm-hmm. that goes on throughout the issue. Um, I can't. I, I feel like I'm going to be hogging the mic if you guys don't. Go for it. I, I I will say that I just I I do really enjoy this kind of storytelling where you where it plays with like ideas where the you have the unreliable um, narrator or the un, unreliable first person perspective and and you don't know what to believe. Um, yeah, I eat this up. This is very good. Yeah, I I'll, I'll speak now before Vince uh, hogs the mic as he always does. Um, no, I'm fucking with you, Vince. I know I do. Uh, no, I I think this is very, very good. I think in almost any other, you know, we talk about how how Grant Morrison, how no one else can do what Grant Morrison does. In a way, no one else can do what Priest does here either. That in less capable hands, this would have been a totally unparsable issue. But because of what Priest is able to do, and because he has he has the voices of these characters down so perfectly, he's able to make distinctions within the dialogue and within the within the book that allow it to make more sense than it probably has any right doing. So take it away, Vince. 
I like this so much more than the first issue of this arc. And I don't know what I don't know. Now I cannot tell you what it was about that first issue that didn't sit right with me. I don't know if I was just jarred by the overall direction or the or the the change in the feel of the book again. Um, I don't know if it was just like whiplash or something, but I enjoyed this issue so much more. Echoing everything you guys are saying, um, but specifically what I want to talk about is how this narrative that that Priest is building with these characters in this in in this kind of corner of the DCU. I know that you talked to him, Brian, about how many pages he writes for each issue yeah. and then how he how he cuts and edits them. Did he before I say anything about this, tell me, did he say anything about how far in advance he works? Like how many issues he has written before the current ones coming out? I don't out? think so, but you have to realize I interviewed him at New York Comic Con 2016. So I don't even know how many issues. He was probably like five or six issues into his run at that point. Sure. So so all I wanted to I just wanted to make sure to clear that up before before what I say, which is that it it seems to me like he could not possibly have had issue 37 or 36 planned even in his head even really vaguely back when he was writing issues seven eight nine or whatever right yet every time a new story arc starts i'm looking for and i'm finding all the different ways sometimes it's obvious because there's editorial text boxes you know but sometimes there's not those and you're still finding ways that he has managed to sew an event into a event from like a year and a half ago and I think there's no way that he possibly had this in mind when he wrote that original thing back in the early issues, but he figured out a way to sew it in. And so, like, what I mean is he he's finding a way in this arc that has nothing to do anymore with the Tanya Spears Power Girl character. Like, she has not been a character in this book now for, you know... Eight months I was gonna say, or like, something. Yeah. Probably even longer than. Well, I guess not. Maybe it, not. It was yeah, that, yeah, almost a months, year. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and yet, they're using stuff that she did while she was around and her her apparent death to fuel a lot of the characterization here, which is a thing that a lot of writers do. But the but Priest does it so well. The thing that not a lot of writers do and definitely not as well as Priest does, is something like the Rose Willow stuff, the 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 kind of character dichotomy there, and then you decide to make Two-Face a, a heavy feature of this Arkham arc, and then you decide, well, hey, Rose and Willow are like two sides of a coin, and you're going to have, you're going to fold... Uh, two-faced into that and you're going to have Harvey Dent have a vested interest in this character who's experiencing a dual nature as well. <laughs> and and the Willow stuff, star- again, the Willow stuff started like probably eight months or more yeah. ago. And to just effortlessly weave that stuff in arc after arc after arc, it, it happens every arc. Yeah. is just like the best serial comic book storytelling 
like we got done kissing Grant Morrison's ass for uh, for the Green Lantern and the way that he structures and packs an issue. But, you know, we've been watching Priest do this now for two years. And we, you know, that after that first year, we, we pretty much unanimously made Deathstroke the the book. Right. Like yeah. it was it was our number one book. And I feel like, you know, if Green Lantern keeps up, it's like, like those are two sides of the same coin. That's comic books how I want them to be written, yeah. you know? Is there any and doubt? They're, they're both doing Is it. there any doubt at this point that Deathstroke is the best book of Rebirth? Ta- uh, yeah, taken, I mean, yeah. Taken from, as a whole, is there any book better than Deathstroke? That's, that's DC Rebirth. Yes. Because I would still, I would still say I do prefer the Wild Storm in its, in its current form. No, I'm talking of the Rebirth books under that banner. Yeah, Deathstroke. Zach, do you agree? Yeah, I agree, definitely. It's incredible. The only person I know who was hyped for this book was our pal Greg Matasevich. Yeah, that's Greg right. initially was like, "This is going to be great." Priest hasn't done superhero comics in forever. It's going to be great. And I was like, all that's true, but it's a Deathstroke book. You know? <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Greg was right. We were wrong. Shame on us. Greg Matasevich and you we trust. Um, just so good. Such a such a great issue. I can't wait to see where this book is going. And I hope Priest is on this book forever. Yeah. <laughs> Hope until, he gets until, issues. <laughs> until the heat death of the exactly. universe, which is which is quickly yeah, coming. So Twenty years from now. Got it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about Justice League number eleven, written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Francis Manipal. In this issue we get uh we get Superman with an eye patch. Yeah. We get Jaro calling Batman Dad. Uh, we get a power... He's daddy in that eye patch, yeah. let me tell you. We get Black Manta assuming all the powers of Aquaman. Well, that really happened last time, but we, we, we get to see sort of that play out a little bit. Um, we get to see lots of Justice League characters as fish monsters. Uh, Keenan Kong! Yeah, including Keenan Kong, yeah. And, uh, and we see the return of the Legion of Doom. This is, um, to me, this was a much more enjoyable issue than part one of Drowned Earth, which was the Tynion written Aquaman Justice League special, whatever the, that bullshit title was. To me, this yeah. was much more kinetic, much more, um, much more of a fun comic, even though it's still a very serious topic and it's still, you know, there's, there's real stakes put here. I, I talked to Snyder about this a little bit too, is sort of how he can play with the stakes when every Justice League title has such big stakes, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I found this issue far more enjoyable than the first part of the the official crossover. I did like the two sort of um, prelude issues, the one in Titans and the one in, uh, I guess it was Aquaman, right? It might have been in Justice League. Yeah, yeah. 
whatever. I thought both those those issues were better than part one, and I think that this is better than all those issues so far. To me, this is the best part of John Durth thus far. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I agree with everything you said. You kind of mentioned everything I want to talk about. Uh, Francis Manipal's art is beautiful in yep. this issue. Just gorgeous. The early sequence with uh, Mira as a child... Just the colors and everything so about that is so beautiful. Um, and also, I love how, you know, usually everyone's concerned about making Batman look cool or good. He looks like a big idiot in a full body cast, and I'm here for it. <laughs> yep. Zach? Yeah, I think, you know, th- this issue and the preceding issue of Justice League, the other Francis Manipole issue, um, have both been really good uh, as far in terms of like the rest of the drowned earth issues. Yeah. I think those are the highlights so far. Um, I, th- this crossover still isn't doing much for me overall, but it, it's, it's intriguing. I'm interested to see where it ends up. Um, I, I really do like the, the stuff with um, Arian and, and that, you know, Atlantis uh, mythology in this issue. Um, yeah, I don't know. Overall, I'm not like too high on this, but it's it's still very good. It's fun. And like I said at the start of the show, we have an interview with Scott Snyder at the end of the show. So listen up. Well, boys, it's time to talk about Sideways Annual number one, <laughs> written by oh, Garrett Morrison boy. and Dan DiDio. Illustrated by Will Conrad and Cliff Richards. Um, and there's a little backup story at the end we'll talk about in a second. But I just want to ask a question here up top. And this is me getting into my most continuity nerd stuff here. The Superman that we're seeing, is this the Superman that died at the end of the New 52? Well, I... I I think that so the one with jeans right from Grant Morrison's yeah. run was that one at the yes. end, right? And, and so the the problem is though, like, why is he wearing jeans again now? But also, I'm not positive about this. I'd have to go back and look, but I think in Reborn. Basically, like, the spirit or leftover energy or whatever from the Superman, like, merged with yes. the other Superman. Yes. That definitely happened. So yeah. I don't know where this guy comes from, but... Unless this is, like, the beginning of establishing the New 52 as a different continuity completely. Which I'd be down for, actually. Sure. I think. Uh, but yeah, this issue is weird. Um, do we want to even try to parse out how much involvement Morrison had in this? I almost I almost want to say he maybe just like wrote off on some of the dialogue with the characters that he, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. I cannot imagine that he actually wrote much of this. So I couldn't tell if well, sorry, when it was initially announced, I was thinking, huh, I wonder if DiDio just gave him, like, a plot 
and then Morrison turned that into a script. But I think now it might be more the opposite way around, where DiDio kind of set up, here's where the story begins, where should it end, and then Morrison did, you know, the broad strokes of it, and then DiDio filled in the rest. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Um, because the seven soldiers kind of come in and out of this, and they don't really... It's funny, there's not as much... They're not really all that involved, and there's not as much of a definitive conclusion for them as I thought there was going to be. Right? Yeah. Yeah, what's weird about the seven soldiers here is that in continuity right now, there's obviously a lot going on with Zatanna, but everybody else is kind of out there not being used at the moment. And so yeah. you knew they'd have to wrap up Zatanna's story a little bit, but I expected more ambiguity for the other six. Yeah, I don't know. I have to say I I like this Superman as as he's written. Um I think one of the, one of the things that that sucked about the new 52 was that like when Grant kicked off the Action Comics run and Superman had this Superman had this decidedly alternative voice to like the Superman that we thought about pre-flashpoint right so like he was younger um he was a little brasher a a little cocky but still like jokey and good-hearted and innocent he was young dumb and full of cum get it (laughs) yeah jesus um and then other writers just took that character and just wrote him as the same old superman so there was nothing different about there's nothing different about him that made the new 52 like I feel like that was such a problem across all the books. They would find these places where they would make changes to the characters or personality or something. Um, and then other writers would just default back to writing the character that they always thought they would be writing pre flashpoint. Mm-hmm. Right. And so some, I mean, that wasn't the only problem with, with new 52. There were lots of problems, lots of decisions made that were really dumb, but, uh, that was my criticism of Superman. It started out as this different thing, and then it would kind of fall back and default to kind of the boring old Boy Scout. And then, you know, Greg Pak came on and tried something a little different, and that was good for a little while, and then it would kind of slip back, you know. Um, but I like this this New 52 Superman. I don't need him to be the main Superman because I think – I think Bendis writes Superman in a really interesting way, and it, it, you can you can write any Superman that way, and it works. But you know this this Superman specifically, and the way he's written in this issue reminds me of, and this is one for Zach, reminds me of Goku kind of from Dragon Ball. <laughs> yeah, because because he's like cocky, but like jokey and innocent, and when he's fighting that like worm creature with the big teeth, he's like talking about how like oh we. You know, I kill creatures like this on my farm all the time, and it reminds me of like Goku when he's not fighting is just like this dumb farm boy running around. My bullseye womp rats—they're not much bigger than a meter. That too, exactly. Like, <laughs> it's a little bit of the everyman, which which works with this early Superman. So, um, I don't know if like 
are you Brian? Are you suggesting that or whoever said the thing about the new 50, establishing the new fifty two as a separate continuity? Are you suggesting that like at some point when Rebirth comes to its conclusion with Doomsday Clock or whenever? that we're going to get like a new 52 side universe out of it. Like almost like ultimate Marvel. I don't know. I don't think DC's ever going to do that. I remember there was talk maybe about a year or two into the new 52 about establishing a series of books set in the old continuity. There's a lot of talk about that for a while. And just it, really, yeah. I don't think it was ever talk from DC. I think it was just fans saying that, you know, but there's, that's so confusing. You know, if one of the things that the New 52 was trying to do was to simplify things. So if you're like, you know, there are these books, but there's also these books with very similar titles and very similar characters, but it takes place in a different timeline. You know, I, I think that's problematic. What I think could happen, though, and again, this goes back to Grant Morrison being a team player here. If the end of Doomsday Clock is a somewhat resetting the new 52 to me is the easiest bit to just pick up and take away without too much changing. Mm. Like with the exception of the bat of Snyder's Batman run, is there anything established in the new 52 that if it were to disappear tomorrow would make any real difference to the current DC product? There's, there's, no, I don't think so. But you also can't go back. There's, there's been things changed that you can't really go back to where we left off with Flashpoint. You oh, know? I, and, and it won't be, it won't be a clean break at all. No. And I think you're going to no. see things much like with Flashpoint, where Flashpoint left the Green Lantern books and the Bat books alone for the most part. I think you'll right. see certain things operating that same way. Sure. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, you th- yeah, I think specifically like going back to New Fifty Two era things. You the highlights there would be, or I say the highlights, but the things that were distinctly different. You know, you've got Superman, you've got Wonder Woman, you've got the Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. Those would be. I don't want to say iconic, but um, very unique to the New Fifty Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that brings us to our final discussion book of the week, the one that Zach really wanted to talk about. So I'm going to turn it over to him in just a second. And that is The Dreaming, number three, written by Cy Spurrier, illustrated beautifully by Bill Quisevely. Zach, take it away. So I just wanted to talk about this book a little bit because in a, in a – a week where we had another Vertigo book that touched on a lot of um, politically tinged topics really well. Um, this book kind of also does that, and I couldn't decide how I felt about it. Um, and I, I was curious to get your opinions on it, particularly, you know, in in the case of the character, this character of the, the Judge Gallows. Judge Gallows, yeah. Um, and some of the ideas that he's espousing, like obviously, like we get a little bit more of his origin here. I'm still Vince. Was he? I think the maybe when we last talked about this issue or this book, you weren't on. Was he in the original Sandman book? Um, I, I, I 
somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was not Judge Ezekiel Gallows, but there was a Judge Gallows that had a different first name, I want to say. So this is like a descendant or something. Okay. Let me let me Google that real quick. Talk talk. Okay. Okay. So so in this book, you know, we we find out that Gallows is this nightmare um created by Dream um that ran kind of in the period of, you know, the Civil War um and and was part of the public consciousness, the Zeitgeist um leading up to kind of, you know, World War 1, World War 2 era. Um and then he kind of became obsolete and got put away, but now he's back and he's trying to make the dreaming great again. <laughs> um, uh, he's trying to get rid of oh, all these. Oh, I just uh, got that. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to, you know, get rid of these. Uh, these the new folks. Um, yeah, the new folks who are stealing everyone's jobs and um, – He's definitely the law and order candidate here. Um, <laughs> did you guys think that this was too heavy handed? I mean, I think this whole book's been a little bit heavy handed so far. I, I, I've mm. probably been the, the least on board with this book. Not probably. I've you definitely been the least on board with this book. And I, I don't think that this issue was was bad, but I think that heavy handed is a really good word for it. I think I think it came close to maybe being too heavy-handed, mm-hmm. but I still there are things about this issue that I loved. I loved the um, the bit with the psychiatrist that Lucian goes yes. to talk to, yes. and it turns out that she was Glob. Um, <laughs> that was great. I loved the stuff with Dora, and and the kind of like weaponized word or mm-hmm. you know. I thought I thought that whole back half of the issue and the sequence of events and even the small things that are happening, like the kind of juxtaposition between Cain and Abel and how they're switching places, all of those like small things happening in concert with each other, it felt like dominoes falling. And I felt like um, Spurrier did a really good job in setting all of these things up to happen. Um and I feel like the comic that we're left it with at the end of this issue is a lot more interesting. Um, yeah, I agree. I I think you said it all. I think that I, I feel the I felt the exact same way by the end. And um, when you say that it's heavy-handed, I I agree. I think that. Uh, to to compare it to something like Border Town, you know, having a picture of Trump on the wall, uh, as I kind of joked when when we were talking about that book, that's pretty heavy handed. Like that's driving a point home. But I think the difference is is that Border Town exists in a world that you know, well, it has all these fantasy elements and things. It's supposed to be as the year two thousand eighteen. It's supposed to be a world that we recognize apart from the fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the dreaming is entirely metaphor. This whole thing is entirely metaphor. And when you do a metaphor that's this heavy-handed and it's entirely metaphor, then it's then it's what you're saying it is. And I, f- I felt that for sure. It's different from 
you know, literally putting a picture on somebody's wall that an actual vice principal probably would have, you know, um, it's different than literally having ice agents drag a, a, a chef out of a restaurant because that literally happens every day, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. This, that, yeah. Yeah. Border towns is more, um, not necessarily parody almost satire in it's, a way well, it's rooted whereas in reality alleg- whereas this is allegory yeah and, and allegory is a lot harder i feel like to it's hard to not do it's hard to do subtle allegory right um so i think in that way it was less successful um Yeah, and and uh, as far as Judge Gallows goes, there was a Judge Quentin Gallows uh, way back in the '90s as part of the Dreaming, and uh, okay. I I think it's weird. I I think this is then supposed to be a different character. I don't think they would just get the first name wrong. That's weird. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that weird. is weird. Yeah, so I don't know if it's supposed to be a descendant or something, but. Uh, Judge Quentin Gallows was an unbalanced judge from the Dreaming who operated in the waking world in the land of dreams as a judge and as a host for some unexpected tales, even when he had ex- been expelled from duty by his peers. He once forcibly abducted Abel from the House of Secrets. It's all it's all this, you know, Cain yeah. and Abel, you know. He even has that uh, that same skull mallet that he uses in this issue. Yep. It yep. So like. it's so uh so if it's not like a rebooted version of this character or something, it's it's surely a descendant or something that they and they're just not going to explain that part because you don't really need to, you don't really need to muddy it up for anyone who hasn't read all the old, right, uh, stuff, you know. But yeah, and again, I think this book is beautiful to look at. Yes. Um, Bill Cusaverly's art is uh, oh. So good. Agreed. Yeah. Some of those layouts. Yeah, too. I was just going to say, I feel like her layouts are among the best in all of comics. Cons- with consistency, you know. Um, well, that does it for this week, folks. What do we have coming up next week? What's the funny, Zach? Um, oh, man. Just really quick. Uh, Ezekiel Gallows is uh, one of the secondary antagonists of Scooby Doo The Mystery Begins. <laughs> Wow, we, we got a Hanna Barbera crossover when we didn't even expect Ryan's it. Ryan's Priebus. Even, even. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan's Priebus? Sounds like a nice yep. penis. Um, <laughs> all right. Next week, we have the excellent Catwoman. We have uh, D- Detective Comics. Again, I think the Two-Face thing hasn't ended has yet, not. right? We have a new arc for Flash. Uh, we have... Electric Warriors. I heard that one's pretty good. I've heard the same thing. Uh, Hawkman, number six. Mr. Miracle, number 12. Last Mr. Miracle. Is that really happening? It hasn't hasn't been delayed? I believe so. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, House of Whispers, Last Plastic Man. Uh, Red Red Hood Outlaw. Suicide Squad 48, Supergirl 24, Superman 5, Titans 29, Brian's favorite yep. book, and and we have the first G. Willow Wilson Wonder Woman. Yeah, it's going to be a week. It is. And we have the comedian and marionette action figure two-pack that you've <laughs> all been 
waiting anxiously waiting for i've got i've got two pre-ordered one for what (laughs) one one for kissing (laughs) one not for kissing (laughs) (laughs) i I wish we were in the same room you guys yeah i i wish that often uh well (laughs) if we're not in the same room as you you can get in touch with us via twitter well for two of us at least i am at brian needs a nap I'm at Walker Fox. If you, I'm dunking my plunker. <laughs> I was like, if you want to get in touch with Vince, just post something vaguely pro Grant Morrison someplace on the internet, and Vince will find it and comment <laughs> on it. And uh, until next week, have a good one. And uh, in Morrison and Priest, we trust. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. You know, I've read Justice League 11, and there's a lot I want to get to, but I have sort of an overarching sort of question I wanted to ask you about your Justice League run. One of the the things that I'm really... I hope you liked it. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was great, yeah. Um, thanks. One of the things that I'm really interested in is... You know what? What I've loved about your run so far is that there's been these obviously universe-shattering catastrophes that we've become aware of. We've become used to with Justice League books, right? They have it has to be something bigger than just Batman or Superman, or else just Batman or Superman would take it. But so you're building can handle it, yeah, right? Exactly. You're building these gigantic events and and these real consequences that are putting real people in danger. My question for you to start is, how do you prevent that from feeling trite and normal? Like, I, when I'm reading this, I, I'm thinking, oh, shit, there's some serious stuff happening here. But I've read a thousand stories that also put the world in danger. So how do you designate, I guess, how do you manage that by putting the world in danger constantly but still making it feel fresh and dangerous and real? Well, I think there's there's two things. I mean, I think on the one hand, just the simplest is, is trying to come up with something that you haven't seen before in terms of the method by which the villains are threatening the earth. So here, you know, it, for people picking up the story, the idea is basically that these ancient sea gods who once came to earth to steal um, the life force of Poseidon's trident, which kind of gives life to oceans, cultivates it uh, so that they could take it to planets, uh, oceanic planets around the galaxy and begin life that they could rule. Um, these gods are uh, fended off and struck down back in ancient times by Poseidon himself and uh, Atlantis's first hero, um, Arion. And they get sent to this graveyard of gods where all kind of um, dead deities go. And then once the Legion of Doom breaks them out, they come back to Earth and essentially flood it with an alien ocean through their space kraken, which can... Um, <laughs> Uh, which turns anyone that touches it into a kind of aquatic monster that they can control. So for me, the first, this first sort of step is trying to do something that 
you know, visually, um, just kind of uh, narratively, we haven't seen. Um, but the, the 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 thing you're hitting on, I think that's really important is that none of it matters if it isn't um, emotional. That's the thing that makes it original, even more so than any kind of um, uh, you know plot plot elements or kind of originality to the freshness to the premise itself. Like the premise won't matter and won't feel original if it isn't something that feels uniquely emotional to the characters. So it's it's really about that. It's kind of making sure that this thing that's attacking the earth or that's doing something to the earth in some way has like a very real and palpable emotional echo or emotional parallel in uh, the kind of deepest conflicts that one of the characters or a couple of the characters are going through in their lives. So here it really is sort of focused on this notion that Aquaman um, at this particular moment is sort of out a, a little bit lost. You know, Mira is queen of Atlantis she's doing a great job. He uh, has always kind of wanted to explore farther horizons. And then suddenly the source wall breaks and the multiverse seems to be contracting and there seem to be fewer oceans and horizons to explore. So this kind of event happens right at that moment and sort of realizes some of his deepest fears about those topics. So I hope that makes sense. It's sort of, those are the two, I guess the two aspects of how you try and keep it fresh one is just the fun originality of it, of the premise and the second and more important one is the sort of emotional um the emotional uh gravitas of it yeah absolutely uh one of the things that's been really interesting over the last let's call it seven or eight years has been this refocusing of aquaman of trying to take the character from you know as you and many others have joked in your comics a guy who talks to fish to to being you know that cornerstone member of the justice league that really important piece of the sort of overall dc puzzle so from your perspective what is it about writing an aquaman centric story that is appealing to you well i think i for me i just think there's so much that's unexplored about his mythology um and i'm a big fan going back to a lot of the Peter David stuff and then, you know, what Jeff was able to do between pre new 52 and post new 52 was, was fantastic in terms of repositioning him and, and um, kind of uh, re-examining and re-exploring a lot of his, uh, his kind of background and history. But I still think there's so much outside of sort of um, the politics and the kind of, uh, you know, conflicts within Atlantis or between Atlantis and the shore the, you know, landbound people like us um, that hasn't been touched on in the book. I've always wanted to do something with him that sort of explored the notion of him as a mariner, as somebody who didn't just connect with fish, you know, or talk to fish, but that that power is sort of emblematic of, of a larger, a larger sort of ability that he, he can't literally do, but that uh, speaks to this notion of connectivity, that we cross oceans to find each other, to find new places that sort of to share what we've learned with each other. And to me, Aquaman as that, as that kind of um, mariner figure, that that character that sort of wants to find new oceans and find new people and sort of bring them in, um, that hasn't really been um, touched on as much, I think, in, in his series. So it, with that in mind, like for me, um, as the kind of compass for this story, it allowed me to then be like, well, what about ancient sea gods that can populate planets around the <laughs> around the galaxy? Well, what if they have an armada that has space pirate ships? Now can we get space krakens? You know, and now I have a whole cast of things that I couldn't otherwise. Mm. 
<laughs> so in that regard, it you know it begins with that where you, the the thing you're kind of what's important about Aquaman that hasn't been explored, or you know what do I find most attractive about Aquaman's uh, character and, and mythos? And to me, it's all of this kind of like the ocean itself, all this kind of strange, completely unexplored territory. So I mean, I love the characters and you know the mythology that already exists, but I just think there's there's just so much that's has such rich potential that hasn't been um hasn't been mined yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, Dan Abnett's Aquaman has been a really fun, really interesting book that I'm you know, I'm excited for what Kelly Sue is coming, but it's been really great to watch Dan build this whole Atlantean mythology up into something really rich and interesting. And you're playing with a bunch of those characters in Drowned Totally. Earth. So which of those characters has been the most enjoyable for you to bring into the story? Like what is what is Dan's impact made on this uh on the story for you? Well, Dan, I mean Dan's a good friend and a lot of the stuff that he's been doing um we discussed back when we were doing metal. Mm -hmm. The rising of Atlantis, all that stuff um, that came from our discussions about the consequences of metal back in 2017. So, um, and once he made, what I loved is when he made Aquaman kind of an outlaw in Atlantis and almost a kind of Batman-like figure to Atlantis. There's, and he's created su such great and rich, um, uh, sort of, I think, such a great and rich uh, geography to that, uh, to Atlantis itself and, and sort of a cultural, you know, all those sort of different people, everything like that. He's made it such a, a living, breathing place. I love it. But our job, I think, when we come on to do something with it in Justice League is to sort of acknowledge all of that, make sure it stands, use Mira, Mira as queen of Atlantis, follow everything that he set up so well, and then take it in a direction that you haven't seen. So a lot of this, I mean, all of this was planned with, um, Dan completely he's writing issues of Aquaman that tie in and he's writing um some of the stuff that happens uh here that sets up Kelly Sue as well kind of helps him close down some of his run as well mm -hmm. so he's a terrific collaborator and I can't say enough good things about him and his his run on the book yeah I I totally agree with that um so let's talk Legion of Doom for a second here one of the things I think is is fascinating about issue 11 is it's the first time we've really seen the Legion of Doom do something that seems, I don't want to say evil, because a lot of what they've done in the past has not been great, but in your run, there's been this real sort of logic to what they've done. And this is the first time that it seems like maybe they're a little bit going beyond what logically makes sense into something that is purely for their own benefit. So how did that shift happen for you? Oh, yeah. Well, Luthor, yeah, Luthor is totally zealous in his purpose. Like he's become somebody who believes there's really no cost too great to get where he needs to be. Um, he genuinely believes that uh, humanity had a different place uh, assigned to it in the multiverse back when the multiverse was originally started. And humanity had more agency, more power, was physically different, all of it. And that there's a secret way through this being in the totality to sort of unlock that possibility once again. So there's nothing he won't sacrifice for it because what he sees at the end of this kind of black, you know, rainbow is um, the potential to reset things the way they're supposed to be for humanity and that he will be sort of the greatest hero in human history for restoring it to what it's supposed to be based on its kind of natural inclinations. His belief is that sort of we 
we were separated into the, we were basically reset into these kind of weak things that are supposed or tell each other we're supposed to be good and go against our nature and have been defanged and declawed and, and all of this. And, and it uh, ultimately we're meant to be the most powerful things in the universe. And the wall was there not to protect us from what's on the other side, but to protect them from us. Mm-hmm. So here, I mean, Luther, there's, it's one of those things where he has such purpose and I really find it like, like complex at least writing him because um you know he's not he is evil like but he's evil in that way that's just complete um belief like he he really like a he has a almost religious fervor for this kind of belief that he has that that this is the way it's supposed to be the thing he's trying to achieve and that everyone will be grateful to him on the other side of it so if the sea gods have to come and drown the earth so that he can get into the hall of justice and get that totality. Well, he'll undrown it and kill them all if he needs to at the end, once he has the power of the totality unlocked. So everything to him is just one, everything is in service of his bigger plot. Mm-hmm. So he does not care who dies, who lives, who he betrays, you know, and in that way, I think it lends itself to, I mean, it, he becomes an incredibly, incredibly fun character to write. And also, really uh interesting i i love writing lex you know he's incredibly fun it seems to me like with a with a mindset like that obviously it's it's easy for him to do these things to benefit him but if he's always going to benefit himself then his teammates will eventually fall to that as well is that a dynamic you're looking to explore when when luthor puts himself above the legion oh yeah that happens this arc so you'll see in Drowned Earth, I won't say, but somebody steps out of line and winds up going down and not being in the Legion or maybe anywhere <laughs> anymore at the end of the story. So there's um, those tensions begin to rise as it becomes clearer and clearer that Luther's purpose, you know, isn't to share everything with them, but to exploit them to get where he wants to be. Um, But he still believes that he's doing them a a favor. He still thinks at the end of the day, if he can sort of achieve what he wants to achieve and get sort of the equivalent of, you know, the infinity gauntlet here in in its own way, he can make, he can reshape the universe into what it's supposed to be. And in doing so, everyone will be rewarded. So, you know, if he has to betray you right now to get where he needs to be, so what? It's the bigger picture. It's that feeling of, you know, anything to win. It doesn't matter what you have to do because as long as you get there, you know, it'll all be fine if you can get there. You know, you'll, everyone will be, thank you, even if you have to uh, cheat and steal and kill and everything. So that mentality to me is fascinating to explore. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not just because what happens if you don't get there, but what happens if you get you there. Do, right. And, and everything that you've done comes to haunt you yeah. in that moment. Yeah. So I am really like writing him a ton. Yeah. I want to pull back just for a second here. You know, what's been really fun is seeing the connectivity of the various Justice League team books. And that, that includes, you know, Titans, Teen Titans, and the upcoming Batman and the Outsiders, all that. It's been really cool to see the sort of connectivity there. But it seems like the Justice League books are operating not in a bubble, but, you know, in this own little corner of the DCU. And there's a bunch of stuff happening outside of that corner. You know, stuff like Heroes in Crisis or, you know, various other events and sort of, um, you know, just plot lines and story threads and all that. When you're plotting these Justice League books, 
are you guys very much thinking about it? Okay, we are, we're just worried about what's happening over here. Or is there a desire or temptation to pull from those other things and bring those into your story? Oh, yeah. Well, what we're building to, if I can, you know, just sort of reiterate this, because if I could leave people with sort of one message over and over for metal all the way through the end of 2019... It's that we're building an Uber story. Uh, we built it. I mean, in 2017, we're 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 just executing it now. So the idea was always to go metal, no justice, the three Justice League books, Batman Who Laughs, a book we're about to announce over here on the left, and then that all these books in this corner are sort of building a story that then is going to sort of expand and become something really big and special summer into fall of 2019. So for us, there's times to kind of separate and let everybody kind of do um, their own uh, their own sort of independent you know thing, even within the Justice League group itself. And then there are times to kind of come together and then and do kind of a, a big, immersive, bombastic, you know, all-encompassing kind of story. So when I was you know on Batman or all of that stuff too, it was always that way. You know, Jeff would be doing. Um, uh, forever evil and Batman would still be running the way it was. You know what I mean? Like the, the skies weren't dark and there was no, there was no moon missing and the, 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 uh, the, um, crime syndicate wasn't here on earth. So, you know, you try and allow each other enough breathing room that each story can stand independently and be kind of visionary, visionary in a singular way. But then there are moments when it feels like you have to remind people, no, it's one tapestry. So, Right now, we're kind of all giving each other room, I think, to build what we're building. There's big stuff coming in Superman, for example, in the summer. Um, and there's big stuff coming in Batman, you know, as well. So everyone's sort of building their architecture. But when it comes to summer, fall next year, um, this, you know, you'll see a lot of coordination. I can say that. Like into fall, you'll see a lot of coordination between the books to have not just sort of absorb or, you know, be be kind of absorbed into the story that we're telling, but you'll see how a lot of the pieces being set up in other books are also connected to stuff that's going on in this book. And that we're going to reflect some of that too. So we, we do have a big plan of where these things have big touch points and are, are going to be um, very confluent. And, you know, we also want to make sure that people don't feel like they have to read everything all the time. And that, you know, if Batman is off planet in this book, it doesn't mean, you know, in Batman, it'll be like an empty empty back cave or vice versa right all right last question for you uh when we spoke at new york comic-con you dropped the jaro bombshell and we all had this amazing chuck yeah. over over you know jaro and jaro has been so great so far so it you know no spoilers but what's the next fun little teaser you can drop us with you know whether it's next issue or 10 issues from now what's a fun little jaro-esque tidbit you can drop for our readers well, I'm writing an issue right now where he saves the day. It's issue 17, and it's a, it's a, he also becomes way more, he sees Batman as this paternal figure, which is a lot of fun to write. It sounds absurd and ridiculous, but I actually really, <laughs> actually really have a lot of feeling for this weird relationship and enjoy dad, writing it. Right? But, um, call him dad in number 11? Or? Yeah, he calls him dad in this one. Yeah, and the, um, the uh, in issue 17, which is a Jim Chung issue, you know, and again, obviously like three, four months down the line, but Luthor and, um, and, uh, and uh, Merchant Manhunter meet on Mars secretly to sort of see if there's any chance of a truce 
um, given the terrible things that happen in the Justice League annual, which is in January. And Jaro is kind of the secret. It's a, almost like a Western, and Jaro is the thing that saves the day. That's awesome. So it's very fun. Luthor has him and sticks a hypodermic needle into his eye so he can't do anything, and then he finds a way around it. Oh, man. <laughs> I love it. That's a real manga, Brian. Is it okay to pick up girls in a dungeon? That's another one. <laughs>